welcome to Spirit of the Camino, a podcast about the unique and magical experience that is the Camino de Santiago. Join us on this adventure and discover the spirit of the Camino for yourself. Hello, and welcome back to the Spirit of the Camino podcast. I'm Nick, and I'm here with Wendy, and it is day 45 of our never-ending Camino, and we are taking a rest day here in Braga, in the north of Portugal. Because we have just finished our part of the Camino Torres. It wasn't the whole Torres, but it's all that we're going to do of the Torres, and so it seems like a good time for a break, because actually we haven't had a rest day in quite some time. Yeah, almost a month, I think. We took three really early on in an ascent, um, and one of the reasons for that was that you were having problems with your feet, although that has improved. It has improved a lot. Um, the past few days, I think it started to go downhill again, largely because of all the asphalt that we've been walking on, which we will talk about in this episode. Uh, but absolutely, it has improved vastly from, say, a month ago. All right. So as we talked about at the end of the last episode, we decided at the end of the Camino Nascent to use the Camino Torres as a link to help us get to Santiago. Um, before we get into that, we've actually been debating a little bit how we should pronounce the name of this Camino because mm -hmm. there appears to be uh, an official Spanish uh, site or, or, or group overseeing it and also an official Portuguese uh, site that oversees it. So in Spanish, it's known as the Camino Torres and in Portuguese, it's known as the Camino de Torres. Mm -hmm. But the word is the same, T-O-R-R-E-S, mm -hmm. and it means towers in both languages, although it doesn't actually have anything to do with uh, physical towers of any sort. No, it's actually named after a person whose surname was Torres, uh, and he was Spanish. He was from Salamanca, or I don't know where he was from originally, uh, but he became a professor at the University of Salamanca, ultimately, and he actually walked from Salamanca to Santiago. So he was, his experience was the inspiration for the creation of this Camino much later because he lived in the 18th century. And then um, not that long ago, another professor at the University of Salamanca delved into his writings because he wrote kind of a memoir about his, his experiences and determined through that which places Torres had passed through and used that as the basis for developing a Camino uh, more or less following the footsteps of Torres. So that's, I think, our justification for using the Spanish pronunciation, which could actually be the Portuguese pronunciation or pretty close to it, uh, depending on what part of Portugal you're in, because I have heard up here in the north of Portugal, a lot of people do pronounce the double R not so much as an H like I would, but more like a, a trilled R or a rolled R. Right. And just going back to the original uh, Torres who, who walked this route, it's just kind of interesting because the 18th century is seen as part of this long decline of the Camino de Santiago from its medieval heyday. And it wasn't really resuscitated until beginning in the 1980s and really not getting going until the 1990s. Um, just the Camino in general and the Camino Frances in particular. And so, yeah, it's just kind of cool to have this 18th century uh, professor who decided to walk the Camino and create this new Camino at a time when that wasn't really in vogue and other people weren't really walking the Camino, certainly not in the numbers that they had been walking it um, centuries earlier. Yeah, I would like to read up on it more and perhaps even read Torres' writings about his journey. 
To be honest, we did very little research on this part of our Camino uh, because we weren't really thinking about it. You know, the, our focus was the Nascent, and then the, then we were just thinking, okay, so what do we do once we finish the Nascent? How can we get from there to, to Santiago? And it turned out that Torres was the most obvious link for us. But yeah, we were really just treating it just as that, just as a connecting piece to get us, um, as it turns out, from one full Camino to, to the next, because we are going to do the full Camino da Gera dos Arrieros as well, which I'm also really looking forward to. But yeah, we really didn't think very much about the Torres, and to be honest, we didn't do much planning of it at all until we arrived in Trancoso and suddenly had to start walking it the next day. Yeah, it was yeah, it was just one of those things where we just always had the the next day on the, or the next couple of days on the ascent, you know, in mind, and then yeah, finally we finished it, and we thought, oh wow, tomorrow we're starting a whole different Camino, so we need to figure out how to do it and and whether it's waymarked and all this kind of stuff, and so the Torres is. Another Camino that's not really well known or well traveled. It's funny that it probably of the three Caminos that we're talking about, the Nascent, the Jeda, and the Torres, it's actually the most well known, probably, or I at least say. the kind of oldest in terms of its modern history. Um, but and so it's something that I'd heard of. I'd been aware of it. I'd, I'd looked into it a couple of years ago. Then I just sort of forgot about it. So you know, there is a, a trickle, I guess, of pilgrims, although. Once again, we did not see a single pilgrim Nope. on our eight days on the Torres. So we're now on day 45, as we mentioned, and we have yet to see another pilgrim, which is kind of amazing. Yeah, we've definitely had that, never had that experience before. We've had some low-key Caminos where there weren't many pilgrims, but for one, we've never walked for 45 days. This is already our longest Camino, and we've certainly never walked uh, for any, you know, anywhere close to that length of time without encountering another pilgrim. Right. So just to reinforce again the point that we didn't walk the entire Torres, basically it goes from Salamanca, there's eight stages uh, according to the kind of official stages from Salamanca to Trancoso. There's then seven stages from Trancoso to Braga. And then we're kind of treating Braga as the end of the Torres. Um, I mean, you can then walk to Ponte de Lima and join up with the central route of the Camino Portugues, but then you're not on a, a unique or exclusive Camino from that point on. Uh, you're just joining another sort of existing route. Um, so I kind of think of it as Salamanca de Braga or Salamanca de Ponte de Lima, but of course you can go all the way to Santiago by joining this um, the main central route of the Portuguese Camino. So if you consider it from Salamanca to Braga, we walked about half of that. Right. So seven stages, although we did it in eight stages because one of the suggested stages in the seven was 38 kilometers. And we're very, very glad we didn't do that in one go for all kinds of reasons uh, that we will come to a little bit later. Um, but to start with the really positive things about the Torres, there were a couple of days where we had incredibly beautiful nature and scenery. And, you know, we were really super happy to be walking in those areas and being surrounded by the scenery. As we've talked about a few times, you know, you don't always get that on Camino, um, but when you do, you're always very happy. Yes, and one of those days was our very first day on the Torres coming out of Trancoso. Uh, we had spectacular mountain scenery, really remote, really isolated, um, you know, no civilization around anywhere in sight. It felt like we were really high up at that point too, although apparently that was not yet the highest point of the Torres. We did climb to a higher altitude later on, but yeah, it felt very much like we were up in the mountains 
and it was really beautiful and so we kind of thought maybe the rest of the torres would be like that and it turned out that that wasn't really true no it was interesting i mean i don't know you've looked into some of these earlier stages that we didn't do mm -hmm. uh, i don't know if that was a continuation of mountainous areas in the, those earlier stages of the Torres, us having come from the nascent and having experienced these mountain stages right at the end of the nascent, it was just sort of a continuation of that. But I don't know if it was something very special on just the regular Torres route, or it, it, maybe the scenery had been similar the past three, four days. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure about the mountain part. So I read some blog posts written by uh, a woman named Maggie who. Uh, I am aware of through the Camino de Santiago forum and she has a blog she goes by the name Magwood and uh, so she had written you know a daily blog post for each day walking the Torres and she actually walked a much that was also for her like us it was a, a small part of a much bigger Camino for her so after we had finished the Torres and I'd been reading her blog post daily to kind of see what we were coming up on next I decided to go back and read the earlier ones to see what the first half was like and it does seem like the first half is very different from the half that we did. It seems like it's much more remote and isolated, um, you know, kind of like our time in the Alentejo in the Nascent. And actually it sounded like the uh, countryside or the landscape might have even been a bit similar too, because she wrote about home oaks, for example, which is a tree that we saw a lot of in the Alentejo. Um, it seems like, yeah, they were passing through very few, if any, towns and villages during the day. So, uh, you know, there, there was just one albergue in the, at the end stage, the end, you know, destination of the stage. And that was the only option for accommodation. Yeah, she was describing definitely rural countryside, but I'm not sure about the mountain part. I don't remember her describing being up in the mountains. Actually, when she walked it, which was 2018, uh, there had just recently been a fire in that area that we walked on our first day on the Torres. So uh, she had a very different experience for her. She was seeing lots of burnt tree trunks and um, yeah, it was a very damaged and devastated area and uh, made a much different impression on her than it did on us. Happily, three years later, there's not much evidence of that. And it was really beautiful when we walked through. Definitely. And so that was one of our two favorite days on the Torres. And the other one was our fourth day. And this was starting in a place called Lamego, which we had been to before. And this is this famous day where you cross the Douro River and then you're in the Douro Valley. And then the, the great highlight of that is seeing all the terraced vineyards uh, that are in that area. And this was just absolutely amazing. And, you know, for me personally, I would say this was probably a top three all-time Camino stage. The three that I'm really thinking of are this one, which we're going to talk about, uh, the one we talked about in our last season, which was the stone and water route on the Variante Espiritual of the Camino Portugues, mm -hmm. and the other one that I really loved was the mountain pass on the Camino de Madrid, uh, leading down to Segovia, um, which was a really cool day and cool experience for us. But that's how good this stage was. I mean, there may be some recency bias there, but, you know, certainly a top five at worst Camino day for me and the interesting thing was that we had been to this area and in fact we'd been to this town Lamego three years ago when my parents and one of my brothers had come to Portugal and we'd sort of taken a bit of a road trip into the Douro Valley and so we actually passed some places and went to some places that we had been to before but once again something that we've talked about previously is that when you're walking 
And when you're on pilgrimage, it's just different.、Mm-hmm. You have a completely different understanding and appreciation of the landscape that you're walking through. You're going at it's much slower pace, so you can appreciate it a lot more. And you know, even though we'd been to this area, it was just totally different, and we just absolutely loved it. Yeah, and the fact that we'd been before it didn't didn't spoil it or, or it didn't have any real impact. I don't think. No, no, I don't think so either. And even in the town of Lamego, it turned out that there was a lot more to see in the town itself that we hadn't experienced. I mean, we were traveling with your parents, so we were traveling a bit differently than we would if it had been just the two of us. We tend to, you know, kind of go. Uh, pretty gung ho and like do lots of sightseeing and、uh, you know go at a pretty fast pace. Whereas with them it was a bit more relaxed. Yeah, in fairness, we just basically drove through Lamego and、mm. we stopped at a couple of places、uh, just because there was one medieval chapel in particular that I wanted to see. So I kind of dragged everybody to go to that,、mm. um, and then you know we weren't really aware of all of these other attractions that were in the town. So it was really cool to stay there that night before. But the day itself, you just walk through these vineyards.、Mm. They're also I mean, it's just amazing the way that they're set up. So you're walking basically down to the door, and so you you see them on all these terraces, and they're just so perfect the way that they're set up, and and you know according to the particular angle that you're looking at it, and the way that the sun's shining on it, and everything, you just see these rows and rows of vineyards, and it's just absolutely spectacular. One of the other things that I really liked was quite early in the stage there was a a kind of diversion away from the vineyards and you go down into this gorge、mm-hmm. and there's a, a bridge that crosses the gorge and I believe the bridge is of Roman origin although it's been kind of modified in the centuries since and there there are no vineyards at all and there are olive trees and it's very rocky and it's very wild and it's this wild beauty which is this really interesting contrast with the kind of perfect nature of the vineyards and other parts of the stage so I really liked that as well. Yeah, that part was really beautiful and unexpected. I yeah, I didn't expect to see scenery like that on that day. I knew more or less what kind of scenery to expect、uh, in the Douro Valley in general because you know we have been through there by car.、Uh, but as you said, it's a completely different experience walking through it. And crossing the Douro itself was another milestone on the Camino for us. It happened, I believe, fourteen days after we crossed the Tejo, which is something we described a few episodes back. So these are the two biggest rivers in Portugal.、Um, we also walked in the, in the biggest mountain range in Portugal, the Terra da Estrela. So to kind of have all those experiences, you know, it does help even further consolidate this idea of ours that we are walking the length of Portugal and passing these kind of famous natural milestones that that exist in Portugal along the way. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It is a little bit of a shame that the town on the other side of the Douro Valley,、uh, the Douro River, rather,、um, is quite an ugly town. <laughs> It is. I was surprised at that, and we had actually been there before. We had eaten lunch there. I'm not sure exactly why we chose that, and we didn't really explore that town. I guess because there's not really much to see.、Uh, it's called Peso da Hegua, and、um, yeah, it's just become built up as a tourist town, a tourist hub. Uh, that I guess people use as a base from which to explore the area, and I imagine you can go on boat trips along the Douro River and things like that. But the development of the town,、uh, yeah, is pretty ugly. the The buildings are all quite modern, ugly cement block buildings.、Um, you know, not not much traditional Portuguese architecture. So yeah, it was a, a bit unfortunate that that was our first. 
you know, the place where we crossed in. But then actually the place where we ended up that night, which I thought was just going to be a nothing little village in the middle of nowhere, it was a much more sizable town that I expected, but also a much more beautiful town. And it was, and we had climbed up to get to that, so it was much higher, and you can actually look back down on the Dodo River, and that was actually the best view we have of the river itself, was right at the end of that day, rather than when we actually crossed it, or when we were in the early stages of that day. But, you know, it's, it's, I would recommend to anybody, even if they're not on pilgrimage, that you can go to Lamegu from Porto, you can get a, a bus there, or you can get a train to Hegua and then a bus. And then, you know, spend some time in Lamegu because there's lots of things to see. There's a castle, there's a cool cistern uh, from medieval ages. There is this chapel that I mentioned before, which is called San Pedro de Bolsimont, which has Visigothic capitals. There's also a church, a type of church that's famous in Portugal with, it's hard to describe it, a huge staircase, mm -hmm. a kind of a, a zigzag staircase that comes down a hill from the church. And there's one just outside Braga, where we are right now, uh, which is called Bon Jesus, which is more famous. But this other one in Lamego is right in the center of town. Mm -hmm. And basically at the bottom of the staircase, it kind of opens out to the main sort of pedestrianized area of town where there's lots of restaurants and stuff like that. So it's perfectly situated. Yeah. And so what you could do is you could spend a couple of nights in Lamego, you could explore the town, and then you could just walk to Hegua, to Peso de Hegua. And that's only off the top of my head, maybe 11, 12 kilometers, but you could do that as a half day hike and then just take the bus back. And then you've seen the best of the vineyards and the best of that scenery. Um, and you haven't really had to spend much time in Hegua just to get the bus back to <laughs> Lamego. Um, but in any case, this was just an, an extraordinary day. We had amazing weather. We had amazing weather the entire Torres. Yeah. Um, and and most of the Nascenti too. We've been really lucky with the weather so far. Yeah, we're going to probably, we'll see what happens in the next episode. We might be commenting on that because it's starting to thunderstorm uh, yesterday and, and in future days. But basically, we've only been rained on three times in our 40 walking days. Mm -hmm. um, which has been pretty great, but you know, we timed it to hope that we would get the best of the weather and we have gotten it so far. Although, you know, the blog that I was following, Magwood, um, she also walked the same route at, or as far as the Torres, she walked the, the Torres at almost exactly the same time of year that we did just like a week earlier, three years before, and she got a lot of rain. So it is a bit the luck of the draw. It is a bit, and it's quite a funny little story that you were reading after we did this great stage through the vineyards, we were in this village that you mentioned that you really liked called Maison Friu. And then from there, you walked to the highest point of the Torres. And Maggie, in her blog, had said that she had so much fog that day that she basically couldn't see anything. And when you get to the highest point, there are modern wind turbines, and she just couldn't even really see them, even though you're really, really close to them. Yeah, she said she could hear them at one point, but not see them. And we had had, up to that point, we'd been on the Torres for four days, and we had literally not a cloud in the sky for four days. Mm -hmm. And I had said to you that the evening before, you said, oh, you, Maggie had all this fog the next day. And I just laughed at it and said, can you imagine that? Mm -hmm. And then we woke up the next morning and there was fog. <laughs> there was nothing like what she had experienced. And we actually climbed above the fog pretty quickly. And so then we had this cool view of a sea of clouds, you know, and then we were up above those clouds. Uh, but it was so, just interesting because the forecast for the next several days, even beyond that, was again to just be completely sunny. Mm. So there was no fog at all in the forecast, but we did see it. But yeah, it wasn't like the fog that she had described. And somebody else on the Camino de Santiago forums on the thread that, that we'd made also said they had fog that day as well. So mm. it seems to be a common theme. But yeah, like you said, we were above the fog 
and that was really cool because you could look down and, and see it. But that was literally the most cloud that we saw on, on our eight days on the Torres. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so that was another highlight to climb up to that highest point. And it was quite interesting because we'd just been through all of these vineyards the day before. And even as we were climbing up, you could see that they were disappearing. And then you get to the other side and suddenly there's no vineyards at all. Right. So it's really quite a limited area. I mean, I think east-west, it's quite an extensive area along the river. But mm -hmm. north-south, it's quite a limited area. And so that was interesting that, you know, the conditions for growing, for growing grapes are you know, limited to this, this one particular area along the river and the Douro River area and the Douro Valley is the most famous wine growing area of Portugal. Um, but it's really a, yeah, an east-west thing. If you're walking north-south, you only get this basically one day where mm -hmm. you see a lot of vineyards and that's it. Yeah. So that also ties into, you know, what I talked about in the previous episode about how I really loved seeing the local produce and how that changes as you go along and how you can see uh, what different um, products and foods are produced in, in different areas and different climates. So yeah, grapes are another one to add to that list in the Dodo Valley. Right. And let's just talk once more about something that's already on the list, which is cherries. Yeah. <laughs> um, because we did, we had a bit of a lull with the cherries after right. we went through this high point of the cherries on the descent. Uh, then, you know, the first few days on the Taurus, we didn't see many cherry trees at all. And then sometimes we would just see one or two wild ones and the cherries were nowhere near ripe. Right. And so we thought, okay, I guess the best of the cherries is really over. And then I think the day before the vineyard day, we had our best cherry day for, for a while. <laughs> yeah, the cherries made a resurgence. So I guess that was somewhat to do with altitude. Like we had climbed up too high, so that's why they weren't ripe yet. And then we climbed back down. And so we got in, back into the right conditions where they were ripe for us. But yeah, we had... Uh, Lots of fun foraging for cherries and really stuffed ourselves on that one day. All right, so those are some of the kind of natural highlights of the Torres. There are also a lot of interesting towns. And one of the things that I noted in the last episode talking about the castles on the Nascent was that we didn't see a lot of medieval churches on the entire Nascent, really just a, just a couple. Mm -hmm. uh, and But that changed once we hit the Torres, and you're sort of looking at a different area of the country now. And on the Nascent, we did not see a single uh, example of Romanesque architecture. And if you think about the Camino Frances, for example, you see all of these amazing Romanesque churches, uh, Fromista, for example, being the most famous one. Um, and so, you know, in northern, in Spain in particular, in northern Spain, uh, you know, even more concretely, the Romanesque period is this, you know, amazing period of architecture where so many of these rural churches uh, and their monasteries flourished, and you can still see so many of them today. There's an unbelievable Instagram account called Romanico España, uh, which just every day has these amazing pictures of all these different Romanesque churches, and I don't know how they do it, but there, there are literally hundreds and hundreds of them um, in Spain. Now, in Portugal, we don't have that much Romanesque, and as I said, on the Nascent, we saw literally none, and that obviously makes sense because as you're coming from south to north, you're not going to see them in the south of Portugal, or even in the south of Spain, because during the time that Romanesque really flourished in the 12th century, these areas were controlled uh, by Muslims. But we started to get sort of beyond that area, and it was interesting that it only took one day on the Torres before we saw our first really, really impressive Romanesque church, which was a, a, in a village called San Anselia, 
which is the sort of typical end stage uh, coming from Trancoso, switching from the nascent. And this was quite a cool church, and I had something I hadn't really seen before that, you know, you imagine a Romanesque church and you imagine the portal that's usually there, and, and usually a lot of the um, statue work is there on the portal, and that's really cool. But on the, And that was also true on this church, but also there were two, what would you call them, kind of crevices in the actual facade on either side of the portal. And yeah, you it, could call it a niche. Maybe. A niche, right. And each of these two niches had three figures. And we'd read that these are the only freestanding Romanist sculptures in Portugal, which is a bit of a kind of random statistic. But for history geeks uh, like us, or like me in particular, uh, that was cool to see. Mm -hmm. And apparently one of them is Santiago, although it wasn't really apparent to us which one he was, because the sculptures are very old. And so they are holding different things, different, um, you know, representations to indicate which which saint they are, but we couldn't really make it out. Right. And then we did see some other Romanesque churches along the way. We were actually, for a while, passing quite a few road signs which were pointing uh, cars to the Hoto uh, de Romanico, so a, a Romanesque route where there were several churches. And we got to visit some of those that were on the Camino or that were a short uh, detour from the Camino. Mm -hmm. And some of the other towns were also really interesting. Uh, Lamego, we've talked about. Cernancelia with this Romanesque church was a beautiful village as well, a stone village with all these other nice buildings too. And then towards the end of the Camino or towards the end of the part that we walked, you have obviously Braga, which is where we are now, which is one of the major cities of Portugal, mm -hmm. uh, which has lots of things to see. And also uh, Guimarães, uh, which is where Portugal was born, as it so claims. Yes, uh, as you enter the town, well, depending on which part you're entering, actually not the way that we entered from the Camino, but in any case, near one of the main squares there, there's this big wall uh, with a big sign that says, Aqui nasceu Portugal, which means Portugal was born here. Um, and coincidentally, we ended up there on the National Day, on Portugal Day. So that was a pretty appropriate place to celebrate. And there were lots of people out celebrating. There were lots of esplanades, you know, outdoor seating at all of the bars and the restaurants. They put out loads of tables and chairs in some of the squares. And it was pumping. Like, everyone was out there, you know, having a drink and enjoying themselves. Yeah, that was really cool. As you said, it was a complete coincidence. Actually, if we'd done that long 38-kilometer day in, in one day, instead of splitting up into two, we would have missed uh, Portuguese mm. National Day in Guimarães. We would have been in Braga uh, instead. And we'd been to both Braga and Guimarães before just a year ago, but they're both really beautiful places, so it was cool to return to both. Yeah, and we didn't have great weather in Guimarães the first time that we visited last year, and this time the weather was much better. And I visited uh, the palace, which we hadn't done the previous time. So, yeah, I was really glad to be back there. So those are some of the more positive and really interesting things about the Camino Torres. Unfortunately, especially the last few days, some of it was overshadowed by the one big negative of the Camino Torres, and that is... The asphalt. The asphalt. There was a lot of road walking mm -hmm. on the Torres. Sometimes, literally, basically the whole stage yeah. was road walking. Yeah. And if it wasn't asphalt, then it was cobblestones, which is even worse. 
And, you know, I think we were really hit by it and we were really shocked by it because as we've said many, many times now, the Nascent was so rural, there was hardly any asphalt. Um, we were just on dirt paths basically the whole time through the countryside. And the first morning of the Torres started that way, as we've just explained before in this mountain stage. So we thought, great, this is going to be more of this. And then it just changed and there was just so much asphalt. Yeah. And then the last few days, it was not just the surface that you were walking on, but also the surroundings became very suburban and, um, yeah, just not that interesting. You know, you're walking through pretty developed areas that are not exactly cities, but more like suburban houses one after the other. And of course, there, you know, you can always find details and things to look at and um you know you can make your own camino and make the experience what what you want it to be but uh for me it's a lot more difficult to enjoy it when i'm walking through that kind of scenery yeah and it was just completely different from what we'd been used to and so we were kind of programmed to imagine what our stages would look like and then suddenly it was it was just different and um, we're lucky that apparently you have this weird uh, aspect of your plantar fasciitis where the longer the Camino goes, the better it gets. Yeah, that and, seems to be the case. And so you were able to manage on the road a lot better uh, than you would have if it was a month earlier. Yeah, I don't think I could have done it a month earlier um, because, yeah, I, you know, thinking back to earlier on in the Nascente, I my feet would just start immediately hurting as soon as I got onto asphalt. Not even to mention cobblestones, because we didn't really have cobblestones back then, and now we have quite a lot of them in northern Portugal. Yeah, I don't think I could have managed to walk a whole day on these surfaces. And now it does hurt, but I am managing. So, so it was lucky that, you know, our Camino was planned out the way that it was and that we didn't try to do this at the start. Definitely. The other thing that I think is worth mentioning is just a few notes about waymarking on the Torres because mm. it's changed quite a lot in recent years as we can sort of gather from reading accounts from three years ago, reading this blog in particular uh, by Maggie, was that basically for most of the Torres there was only painted arrows mm -hmm. and that's it, the kind of old school way of marking it. And sometimes... You know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with painted arrows, but sometimes, especially when you're in the more rural areas, it's just not the best way of waymarking. Sometimes there's a, a turn and it's it's just hard to mark it. If there's no stones or there's nothing around to paint on, right. uh, it's difficult to do it. And so actually on the very first, the first half day, that was all we had for signage and we missed at least one turn um, and it was quite easy to miss. And then when we came back, we saw that there were arrows that were in a blind spot. You could see them when you were going in reverse on the way back, but you couldn't see them mm -hmm. uh, on the normal way. So we missed a turn and, and had to backtrack a little bit uh, from that. So GPS tracks can be important uh, for that. But then after that, for pretty much the whole rest of the way, we did have proper markers with shells and arrows. Mm -hmm. um, but the problem was that once we got to sort of the last few days around the town of Amarant, there seemed to be a bit of conflict between different powers that be in terms of how they wanted to direct the Camino, let's say. Yeah, so in some cases, the older painted arrows 
were pointing in the exact opposite direction as the newer wooden posts that have put up. And also the wooden posts very often conflicted with the GPS tracks that we had downloaded. Right. And so to give one example of this in Amarant, which is a, what's called a concelio here, which is kind of like a district, um, it was quite interesting that they were ahead of the game on signage. And so they were the first people to, give, to have proper signs uh, across the entire Torres, as we understand it. And they have, diff they have their own sign. Mm -hmm. um, it's a light blue rather than a, the sort of darker blue that we're used to. And so they did a really good job of signing their whole district, but it appears that what they've done is kind of redirected the Camino away from the quote-unquote official tracks, which are provided or at least managed by the University of Salamanca. Mm -hmm. And the reason for doing that, or as we guess or as we understand it, is to sort of keep you in their district longer. And that's and that's that's okay because, for example, they took us to uh, we followed these arrows and they took us to a church that we wouldn't have otherwise seen because the tracks don't go there. And it was a Romanesque church. And it was a Romanesque church, and it was one of the apparently one of the better ones on this Romanesque route in this region. And so we were really glad to go there. Um, we found the woman with the key and we were able to go inside the church. And so that was cool. But then the, the problem is that yeah, you've got this conflict. You don't know should I follow the tracks? Should I follow the arrows? And also that at the point where the district ends then the arrows end too mm -hmm. and they just kind of dump you essentially you know on the borders of their district and you're not where the tracks are anymore and i mean the, the tracks have been picked up like someone else has mm -hmm. taken on the the baton and put up these posts and these newer way markings uh so they did pick pick up where the that district left off because we had heard stories uh, about the nascent as well, that it used to be that the signage was all at the this district level, and sometimes from one district to the next they didn't match up at all. Um, so yeah, thankfully that didn't happen here, but it still led to a lot of confusion, and you know sometimes we just felt like we were running around in circles, and that it was taking much longer than we had expected, and so it was a bit frustrating. Right, and so that played into the 38-kilometer day that we didn't do in one day, but we did it in two days. But when we added up our distances, it was it was in the 40s mm -hmm. um, because we'd sort of taken these detours following the arrows to go and see a church or, or just because we thought we should follow the arrows. And it turned out, yeah, that it made, it, it made the days a lot longer than they sort of should have been. Um, so there's a little bit of, yeah, I don't know, you just have to decide whether you want to follow the tracks or the arrows, and you can... I think if you want to go the most direct way, you just follow the tracks. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to see a couple of things, you can follow the arrows. But there were other times following the arrows where we had trouble picking them up. Um, that was leaving a town called uh, Felgeiras, which we, that was the town that we chose to stay in to split up this long stage into two shorter stages. And we, we lost the arrows in the town as we were trying to leave it twice. Twice, yeah. Uh, in the morning. And then in the end, we just uh, used Google Maps to get us to this monastery where we knew that the arrows and the tracks met up. And at, at a certain point, we were able to pick up the arrows again. But it's just a little bit messy. Yeah, yeah. It did feel messy. And yeah, once you become used to following GPS tracks, it's disconcerting to only follow the arrows because yeah, when you lose the arrows, then you don't know what to do. You don't know where to go. So yeah, there seems to be some you know conflicting opinions about which way the the Camino should go, and um, you know I don't know what the politics of that is, but I think 
they just need to take a decision and stick with one thing. And I think just the fact that we only spent eight days on the Torres sort of magnified this problem a little bit because mm -hmm. it, it sort of took place over these last three or four days. And if you do the entire Torres from Salamanca and then go all the way to Santiago, then it's only just going to be a, a small percentage of your whole Camino that has both the road walking and the, some possible issues with waymarking. So hopefully that doesn't put people off the Torres, especially if you start from Salamanca, as, as you know, you've said earlier, it looks like it's very rural from there. Mm -hmm. And, but the road walking does start pretty soon after Trancoso, after the mountain stage. Yeah. Just so you know. All right. So we are taking a rest day in Raga today and we're sort of uh, resetting ourselves and re-preparing to start the next phase of our Camino, and this is the Camino de Geira e dos Ajeiros, mm -hmm. which we mentioned a little bit last time. So it starts from Braga. We're quite excited. And actually, unusually for this Camino, we have a couple of guidebooks. Like actual paper books. Actual paper books. There are a couple of people who are really, really super passionate about this Camino. Mm -hmm. uh, and they've written a guidebook and also a kind of book um, which is a, a guide to the historical sites which are on the Camino and it is interesting talking to people and it's, it's something that we've been thinking about on this whole Camino that the idea of building a Camino how do you do it mm -hmm. is it top down is it bottom up is it done by by governments or tourism authorities or pilgrim associations or by individual pilgrims who are so passionate that they're producing a lot of material and that's what gets it out there and I think that bottom-up approach is really amazing uh, and so we met with with the author of or the co-author of one of these books today, mm -hmm. and he uh, was able to get some books uh, that he could sell to us because we only realized that we wanted to do this Camino when we were already on the Camino. Right. So we couldn't buy the books you know, on Amazon and have them sent to our house because we weren't at our house anymore. And they're not available as ebooks. And I'm not sure why. I think that that would be really, well, obviously it would be really convenient for pilgrims uh, to be able to use an ebook instead of carrying around a paper book. We didn't get around to asking him about that, um, but I don't know. Hopefully they will produce an ebook version in the future. But for now, it is a paper book and the guide is available in a number of languages. Um, including English. We have the Portuguese one. And then the other book that's more about the monuments that you see along the way is only available in Galego, which conveniently enough, I am studying. So I'm going to be our, you know, tour guide of our little group of two. Um, I mean, you can follow Galego as well, but there's lots of pictures in the book and you don't like to see pictures before you arrive at places. So I'm going to be in charge of the books. And I'm just, just flipping through them today, having just received them. I'm getting really excited about this Camino. I think it's going to be really good. Yeah, me too. And this will take us all the way to Santiago. And so we are re-energized, re-enthused, and ready to embark on the final chapter of this journey. Yep. All right. And so we will be telling you all about this Camino in the next episode. Until then, buon Camino. And buon Camino. Thanks for listening. For more great content about the Camino de Santiago, visit our website at spiritofthecamino.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Spirit of the Camino. Buen Camino.